in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash bad money. That's Chime.com slash bad money. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Hoorah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's Bad With Money with Gabby Dunn. Welcome to Bad With Money. I'm Gabby Dunn. This is a show about finances and feelings where we don't talk down to you. That's right, we've committed to this tagline. Let me know what you think. This is our season finale. 
Just in time for the holidays and for you to share this show with family and friends who are going to be scrambling with financial New Year's resolutions. Do not let them fall into the Dave Ramsey cult. Please, it is your civic duty to send them this show. (laughs) Or just any show that isn't Dave Ramsey. This year has been big for my relationship. My partner, Mal Blum, and I collaborated on two projects, both with me directing and them acting. One is our short film, Grinder Baby, which you can watch at patreon.com slash Gabby Dunn. And the other is a forthcoming country western theme music video for their new album, which comes out in March. Or the video comes out in March. I actually am not on top of when the album comes out. You'll have to check out Mal's Instagram for all of that information. I don't work for them. I kind of do. We shot the video this weekend and it came out beautifully, if I do say so myself. Mal is an excellent subject. So, working together. Big, big point of contention in relationships. We also bought a house together. Huge, huge monetary steps. Working on our careers together as a couple, sharing a mortgage, very intertwined. This brought with it so much joy and so many new problems. The division of labor is a big point of contention. Who does the laundry? Who cooks? Who cleans up? Who makes more money? Who pays for more stuff? What do we prioritize? Mal's big thing, as far as I can tell, is that I need to take initiative. And my big thing is I'm not a mind reader. These are minor, classic relationship complaints, almost cliche in their ubiquity. But if they're so common, why are they so damn hard to solve? Money, once the number one reason for divorce, although infidelity has taken the top slot due to the rise of social media, can make or break a partnership. And as we know, the taboo around talking about it, the shame, the vulnerability around sharing something a partner might judge us for, and the lean towards secrecy to save face and not wanting to deal with your shortcomings is tempting. The instinct is to handle it yourself, or at least my instinct. And sometimes we're taught to view our partner as someone we have to impress or hide from rather than work with. It's fear. Because the holidays are here, I thought it might be prudent and timely to do an episode about the realities of long-term relationships and money. This is a stressful time, one that builds resentments around gift buying, gift giving, holiday travel, holiday meals, holiday cleanup, childcare. The list goes on and on. And also in the new year, we like to reevaluate. Our first guest this week is Kaylee Klemp, the co-author of a book called The 80-80 Marriage, which teaches a concept I found personally resonant, radical generosity. I'll let Kaylee explain it better than I could in her interview, but as my partner and I spend more time with each other's families and more time working on our home that we're building together, it is beneficial to realize that relationships shouldn't be 50-50 tit for tat. It could be 80-80, both partners going above and beyond which sounds ideal, if not tiring. Our second guest is Demona Hoffman, relationship expert and host of the Dates and Mates podcast, who joins me to talk about paying for online dating and when to share your financial truths. Plus, she believes love comes first and starting with money is cynical. My mom would disagree. My mom's a divorce attorney, for those of you that are new here. I talk about it a lot. Uh, It informed me. In some ways good and some ways bad. But first... Kaylee. I am Kaylee Klemp, and I am the co-author of The 8080 Marriage, which is a new model for a happier, stronger relationship, which I wrote with my husband, Nate Klemp. Okay, so what is The 8080 Marriage? 
The 80-80 marriage, and really it's any 80-80 relationship, marriage is just one flavor of 80-80, is where each person in the relationship strives to contribute 80%. And I say strives because we really never actually make it, but what that allows us to do is to drop the 50-50 scorekeeping. Is it fair that I'm putting stamps on the holiday cards that were your idea Right? Is it fair that we're spending New Year's Eve with your friends? We get to drop all of that 50-50 fairness chatter and instead create a relationship that's based on radical generosity, which is contribution and appreciation and revealing, and also create a structure where it feels like we win together, that there's shared success. So radical generosity, like, What does that look like? Well, radical generosity is in some ways the mindset that you bring to your relationship. And there are three pieces that make it tangible. One is about contribution. So these are the little things that you do every day in your relationship. And it can be something like, I started the coffee pot for my partner, or I relined the trash can while they took out the garbage, or I wrote a note to wish them luck because they had a presentation that day. These don't have to be huge, enormous things, but it's little things that you contribute. It's also about appreciation. So we think about this like the glasses that you wear in your relationship, that what I go looking for, I find. So if I go looking for all the ways that my partner messed up or fell short, I find them. But in 8080, we say, put on the glasses of appreciation. See if you can catch your partner doing something great and say thank you for it. And then the last piece is about revealing. Can you let them know what's going on inside of you? And then I imagine we'll talk about structure because that's where money fits in. Yeah. How does that work for, for structure? How does that apply to money? Yeah. So for all the different pieces of relationship structure, we think you first have to start with this mindset of radical generosity. Because if you try to decide roles as a, for instance, from a place of fairness, I literally had somebody send me a spreadsheet where they had itemized every single thing that they did every day in their relationship, and it just created a bunch more stuff for them to fight about. Mm -hmm. But if we look at structure in a relationship, it's about your priorities. It's about what you say yes to. It's about your boundaries, which is what you say no to. And where money really fits in is in this dimension of power. How can we ensure that we're making choices that feel like We're saving together, we're spending together, we're earning together. So it feels like it's not I win and you lose or you win and I lose, but rather we win together in this dimension of finances. Yeah. So the tit for tat thing is what you so commonly see. You're talking about the woman with the spreadsheet. Why is that the way that we do things? (laughs) That's it's such a great question. I think it it sort of starts once upon a time. So if we look back, I don't know, think like our grandparents maybe, once upon a time, the roles were divided such that one person in the relationship, stereotypically the man, went out and earned money, and one person in the relationship, stereotypically the woman, if we're in a heteronormative couple, stayed home and they were in charge of the house, the kids, but also the well-being of the relationship. Mm -hmm. And there were all kinds of issues with that. Primarily, it was wildly unfair. Mm -hmm. So fast forward, women are given more opportunities to work outside the home, 
And in some ways, this is a giant step forward. The problem is now that anyone can do things, we don't have a clear script. And so the technology that we employ that's a little bit clunky is fairness. Okay, let's try to make things perfectly, evenly, 50-50 fair. But that creates all kinds of exactly what you're describing, sort of tit-for-tat scorekeeping. One load of laundry equals one dinner, right? Like one getting up in the middle of the night because the cat was barfing equals, right? Like you actually can't do it. And so people end up trying to make sense of and scorekeeping around things that don't work anyway. Okay, with shared success, I think about this all the time and I see so many couples that they resent each other's success. One person makes more money, the other person's upset about it. And that never really, even like in entertainment, it's this big, like one person booked the job, the other person didn't. And the couples that I see that do well are like, great, we did it. Yes. So can you talk about like moving into shared success when it comes to like job achievement? A hundred percent. Shared success is counterintuitive for exactly the reason that you just described. In some ways, I think starting from when we're little, we're trained to be individually successful. Go achieve on your own, go do big things, fulfill your potential. And then as soon as you partner with someone, all of a sudden you're told, now do it together, be a team. And it's a pretty big shift. What you're naming, I think, is where it does feel like there's some way that you're a team. And so rather than it being a competition between you, who booked the bigger job, who got the bigger salary, who got a raise, it is aligning around what are we up to as a team and how can your achievement or how can your accomplishment be part of that winning together? Yeah, how? because I oftentimes see couples that I'm like, you guys seem like enemies. <laughs> it's true. And I think that That shows up when people have been really trained to do it on their own, and there isn't a way that they've ever talked about being a team or a joint entity. And this is really cheesy but true, that in order to get out of that mindset, my husband and I actually named our family team because it was too easy to say, hey, you know what's best for me? What's best for me is to go take this engagement, or you know what's best for me is to start this new company. But it wasn't actually what was best for us. So we took the first two letters of our names. We've got K-A from Kaylee, Joe from our daughter, and N-A from Nate. And we'll ask the question, well, what's best for Kajona? Mm. And sometimes we make counterintuitive decisions. So as a, for instance, when my daughter was coming home from elementary school, he and I were in this conversation about, do we want to bring in help? Do we need a nanny? What do we want to do? And he grew up as a latchkey kid, which is fine. He was like, gosh, I I want her to have a different experience than I had. And as we looked at all the different options, he was like, well, what if I cut back from the company that I co-founded and did 50% so that I could be the parent there in the afternoon? Now, that was not what was best for him if he was going to think about it exclusively through that lens. But as we looked at Kajona and for our team, That was a huge win for our family. How do you deal with like one person thinking that they're doing everything to support the other person's career? Well, I think it can work if it feels like 
one person's career is a win for the family. Exactly. Yeah. And so if it feels like we're a team and being in some ways all of the support or all of the background so that that one partner can have a really big career, if that then feels like that facilitates our family connectedness or resources to do some things we love or furthering our values in the world, it works great. If it feels more selfish, where it feels like, wow, we're all working so hard so that this person can succeed, and then they kind of wield it over the family where it's like, look at my success. Or there, there's a person that we interviewed, and she sort of did the, I feel really embarrassed to say this, but it's my money, and so I choose where we go on vacation. If that's the attitude that shows up, then all the generosity, all of the contribution kind of goes by the wayside. How do you protect yourself, though? Like, we just interviewed someone who interviewed older women for a book, and they were all like, I wish I didn't get married. <laughs> I wish that um, because then they I got divorced and I didn't have anything for myself. <laughs> yeah. So I think that there are a couple structural ways that we could think about it, and there are a couple mindset ways that we could think about it. So structurally, it, and depending on the state where you live and depending on how things work, it makes sense to do some shared pot so that not just symbolically, but structurally, there is something that you are generating that feels like it's both of yours, that feels like it really is that team effort and team reward for the work that you both are putting in, some of which is measured in dollars and some of which is not as easily measured in dollars, but both of which are part of that winning together. I think there's also the mindset shift where if you can frame it sincerely, don't lie to yourself, that this is a win for the whole, it can take away some of that resentment. And I think about it from the perspective where if, for instance, I've made dinner Mm -hmm. and I'm washing the dishes, there's a moment where I can run through the scent where it's like, this is wildly unfair. Like, what's wrong here? And I just, I watch my resentment tally start to build and then for me, I'll catch myself and go, okay, Kaylee, 80-80 or radical generosity. And then I notice, okay, what, what my husband is doing right now is playing Monopoly Deal for the 106th time with our daughter. And I don't want to play that game anymore. So it's, it's a gift to myself. If I'm going to do the dishes anyway, rather than bathing myself in resentment or bathing myself in cortisol, can I reframe it as this is a gift to the family and in some ways even a gift to myself? Yes. Uh- when we were talking about one person making more money, yeah. like how do you circumvent sort of financial abuse or you talked about power, you talked about someone saying, oh, I make the money, so I decide where we go on vacation. Yeah. How do you, if your partner is that way, how do you bring that up to them? Well, I think there's two different pieces in here, both of which are really valuable. The first is around how do you create a balance of power if people are earning different amounts. And it's actually really rare that both people earn the exact same amount of money. And so this is where we find structure is useful. Things like, can we have a budget that we agree to upfront and we both contribute to that budget and our choices are clear. We know how much we jointly wanna spend on whatever it is, dining out versus self-care versus vacation versus saving for education. And having those conversations in advance and having some structure and a budget keeps it from one person making all the choices and the other person kind of having just to go along with it. There's a second piece that I think you're pointing to, which is around bringing it up with your partner. 
And I actually, I think it's kind of a nice time of year to bring it up with your partner because we're starting a new year. And so having a reason that doesn't necessarily feel like, Gabby, we need to talk about money, right? But being able to say, hey, it's a new year in front of us as we're making choices about earning and saving and spending and investing and donating or contributing, where are the buckets? What are our values? And how do we make sure that we're making those choices aligned with our values? How early in a relationship, like if you're dating and stuff, how early should you bring something like this up? I think that you can bring up values really early in the relationship. Getting aligned way up front can help you even just do that. And it sounds terrible to say it this way, but kind of that preliminary screening, are we aligned enough that this is something that we can really make work? I think that inflection points where it's really important to have the conversation, if you move in together and there are going to be joint expenses, that's a really natural time in your dating journey to have the conversation about money. And then if you legally get married, I think it's crucial to talk about money Mm -hmm. because now you're responsible for the choices of your partner. And if they're doing things that you don't know about or if there's student loans or other debt or a gambling habit, that can really get you in trouble financially too. So it's really important that you're transparent at that point. In my book, Bad With Money, we talked about doing work around the house or doing work to support the other person's career, whatever, is equal to money in a way. Like there was a couple that one person makes more money, but the other person knows that when they come home from their, you know, stressful tour that they're on, they'll do the laundry. So like, how do you prove like that this is like just as important and you're not almost like this thing of like, oh, do you think that the little elves put the the (laughs) dishes away? You know what I mean? Yes. (laughs) The elves have not been here. They are on strike. I love the way that you're describing it because really it's about valuing different forms of contribution and emotional labor often is completely invisible and totally undervalued. Mm -hmm. So I think part of it is the recognition and bringing forward to make explicit all of the things that are required for your relationship to work so that things aren't living in your blind spot, so that there is not an assumption of elves. (laughs) But I think there's also a piece here of making choices as a couple about the things that you do and don't want to do that I think one of the accidents that can happen is whether it's from the way that you grew up or historical precedent, sometimes couples will find themselves doing a bunch of things that actually aren't that important to them. And so recognizing, hey, it actually, it doesn't matter to me, whatever it might be, if we send holiday cards, let's just take that off our to-do list so no one has to do it. Or But what if it really matters to the other person? Yeah. Well, so that's where if you don't have totally aligned what's important to you, Then it's worth a conversation about if it's really important to you and it's not important to me, is there a compromise? Some things it's totally okay to say, I know that that's really important to you. Are you okay if you do that on your own? Can I support in a different way? Because it doesn't make sense to have one person suffer because then both people actually can end up in that place of resenting the activity altogether. Yeah. My therapist always says, you are allowed privacy in a relationship. So how much like do you have to share like exactly what you bought or whatever? 
There are three different ways that we saw money work really well for couples. And again, the goal in 8080 is that money is a way that it feels like you share in your success, that it feels like you win together. So recognizing that's the goal we found, couples do really well when there's one pot of money, just because it's the most linear way to say, okay, we win together. Your big promotion at work or your incredible deal, that all goes in the same pot. Nod to your therapist. We also found it works really well if there's a shared pot of money and then two we call side stashes so that you have a space to do the things that might be really important to you but might not be important to your partner. Or there's a third way where we found people who want to keep separate finances that works so long as there's something that you're building together, that there's some shared pot, maybe it's toward a vacation that you really want to do together. Mm-hmm. In terms of transparency around what you spend, I think that anything that's going to affect the relationship, it's important to know. So what I find it interesting when people write books and then they're like currently in this relationship. So like what are some of the like big financial obstacles that you guys have had? Well, so the first one was when we were first getting together we just were coming from totally different worlds. So my husband was still a graduate student. I had been a consultant. And so this notion of we were earning really different amounts of money, where that actually caused the most trouble for us, though, was that I started managing both of our money and I didn't really let him in. Mm. And so holding all this control felt really good because I knew where it all went, but then I resented him all the time. So there's this great story where he went out and bought a bike. And he came back with this beautiful new bike. I was like, I'm sorry, where did you think the money for that came from? Because let's be clear, the graduate student stipend wasn't covering it. He was like, oh, I thought that it was fine. Again, the problem wasn't that he spent the money. It was that we never talked about it. He had no idea what the whole picture was, and I hadn't let him in. So we learned the hard way, (laughs) the importance of communication and transparency, and I think Beyond that, there's also a really interesting piece around each chapter aligning our financial decisions. So the things that were really important to us, we got married at 26, but like was really different than what's important to us when we're 40. Yeah. This came up with our other guests, but it is, it's like communication and also empathy. Like I think a lot of times people go, well, I've changed, but I'm a complex human being and uh, everyone else is a two-dimensional character. (laughs) Like. (laughs) You know, they don't like account for maybe your husband was like, I want to do something for myself and it's a bike today, (laughs) you know, like, yeah, which like sometimes you get caught up in like not codependency, but like, you know, you're like, we're such a unit that then one person just acts out. (laughs) Yes. I think that there's symbolic meaning can show up around purchases too. It's not about the bike. It's about I want to do something for myself. And it's not about the whatever it is, the Starbucks. It's about wanting to feel taken care of or like I get a treat. And I think that's where coming back to a conversation about what you value, it can sound kind of heavy, but it's really useful because then you also know what are the spending things that make you feel certain ways How do you spend that brings you joy versus how do you spend that brings you purpose versus where are you spending where you're like, huh, why are we doing that? I'm just depressed. (laughs) 
<laughs> why, why, why did you buy that? Um, mostly sadness. Yeah, mo- mostly I wanted that brief moment of dopamine. <laughs> yeah, which this is what's so hard. Um, and it's and is like pulling teeth for me is the and what I'm learning. So I, my partner and I own a house together and everything is like you have to like explain what's going on with you in such minute detail before maybe you don't even quite know exactly what's going on, but you like have to explain the reason I bought this bike is because two days ago in my grad program, someone yelled at me. But like it's this level of self-awareness and then sharing that self-awareness and then the other person having empathy for that that is like elusive it's to all couples. Huge. It's <laughs> huge. In the mindset part of 8080, we talk a lot about contribution and appreciation and how it's this call and response. But the third piece is what you're describing, how important it is to reveal. It's so important that the other person tells you what's going on inside. And exactly as you just said, it takes some pausing and self-awareness and reflection and vulnerability Mm -hmm. to be able to say it started because I was feeling sad or I was feeling embarrassed or I was comparing myself to and the other person being willing to hear that and not judge or fix or solve, but really listen and be present. And then for the two of you to say, all right, what do we want to do together so that if there's a pattern, we can interrupt it. If there's a feeling, we can be present with it. All of that different dimensions of mindfulness. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I think radical generosity is something that hasn't hasn't come up on the show at all yet. So I do appreciate it. Where can people find out more about you and your work? The 8080 Marriage, uh, the book is available anywhere that you buy books. And in there, you can learn a lot more about radical generosity and different exercises to help with the structure pieces of your life. And you can also follow us on Instagram, 8080 Marriage, which is just 8080 Marriage. And if you want weekly inbox infusion of radical generosity, you can sign up for our free newsletter. All of that's available on our website, which is 8080marriage.com. So again, just 8080marriage.com. Our next guest is Damona Hoffman, a dating coach who says money is important, but it isn't everything when it comes to love. And she explains how to reframe our thinking around that. I'm Damona Hoffman. I am a dating coach and I help people find love online and off. I also work with OkCupid as their official dating coach. So I I know a lot about the uh, digital dating space. Is it worth it to pay for premium? (laughs) It depends on how much time you have. Like the thing about paying for premium is it shortcuts a lot of things. So I know people are both cheap and lazy, which isn't a great combination. (laughs) So if you're either of those, then it can help you out. In your experience, does that help people match better? You get access on OkCupid to different uh, stacks, different lists of people to sort through. Mm -hmm. So it does kind of shortcut as opposed to going through and looking at every profile individually. So, okay, so you give a lot of dating advice. How often does money come up when singles are coming to you for advice? Oh, a lot. I always start my dating coaching programs asking people, what are you looking for in a partner? And most people will tell me, 
well, I'll know it when I see it. <laughs> and I'm like, honey, mm. if you haven't seen it yet, maybe you won't see it. So we go a level deeper and go into the qualities. And the things that always come up, Gabby, it's it's money, number one, somebody who's financially secure. And, you know, I also hear that people are looking for someone kind, like, duh, are you going to be in a relationship with, with a jerk? Maybe. And I also hear all the time that people are looking for someone who is honest. I th- That to me is a given, but I'm really curious about unpacking the beliefs around money, because obviously you talk about this every week, but you know, we carry a lot of these beliefs. They're deeply ingrained from our family of origin, from our own experiences, and they they still matter a lot to the way that we select partners and the way that we date. Do you ever break down and say, okay, what do you mean by financially secure? Oh, yes, of course. We have to break all of it down. When we unpack that, it it means different things to different people. Like a lot of times when somebody has worked really hard to get where they are financially, there's a fear that comes with that, that whoever they date is going to take that. If it doesn't work out, Mm -hmm. then they're going to walk away with half of that or they're going to have to pay for that person's lifestyle while they're together. And I feel like if you are secure and you have good boundaries, just in general in the relationship, that you can't go into a relationship assuming that that person is coming in to take everything that they have. And sometimes I have people get clear on what that security really looks like. And usually I'm seeing actually a shift in this that people define it more now as having a passion for what they do and having some sort of a purpose really more than having money. And on OkCupid, we even see that profiles that mention money get 50 percent less likes and less replies than those that don't. So it's not even a good idea to lead with that. We want to be in it for love and not for money. So what do you mean by like mentions money when a profile mentions money? Like what's what's the off putting part of that? I think it shows a focus on maybe the wrong things like you are there ultimately to connect when you add money to that, then it colors the perspective of of why you're really there. What do you think of like the, you know, like there'll be this thing of usually a woman being a gold digger or even like the Casey Musgraves song where she's the breadwinner. Are those like outdated types of situations or terms or is that something that you should worry about? Well, gold diggers come in all genders and orientations. Absolutely. (laughs) And breadwinners too. Right. That's true. That's true. So I, I think you know, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of, of gender norms anyway. So I don't I don't think that this idea of the female gold digger is as prevalent as it has been in the past. But just because there is so much fear and insecurity overall and money triggers our fears and insecurities already, mm-hmm. it's really loaded when we bring it into dating. But there are definitely people out there that are there for financial security. And if we even look back, you know, I like to examine how we got here in history. And we look at the purpose of marriage and partnership before was for financial security. You know, like I was the property. Couldn't get a credit card. Right? Well, that was like even not that long ago. That's 1975. Right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So if we even look further back, it's like, I was the property of my father. And this is why my my husband was like, I'm not going to ask for your hand in marriage because 
I think you're your own person and exactly. you're not. Yeah, you have autonomy. So a lot of these, you know, sort of romantic ideals that we have when we unpack them, we realize what's really underneath it. And it doesn't necessarily line up with the life that we're living right now. Yeah, it is. It's like marriage and, and like romantic partnership has the history of just having to do with money. My grandmother uh, married in the 50s. She had two kids. She married a doctor. She absolutely loved him, but it was survival. It was like, I got to, I got to, this is what's available to me. I'm an immigrant. Like I got to do something. But I think like that leads to people nowadays, like not talking about it as much as maybe like, or not being as practical. Like when should you start like talking about it? If you're, if you're starting to date someone. I think it shouldn't be front loaded in the conversation. And we also live at a time when, like, unlike your your grandmother and my grandmother, who came from an immigrant family as well, there wasn't a lot of movement in your in your station in life. You know, it, there, your financial stability, it was kind of kind of paramount and mm -hmm. and you couldn't really change that. And you also lived in a closed system where you only knew the people in your neighborhood, pretty much. <laughs> if you if your mom didn't didn't know them, if they didn't go to church with you, if they weren't your neighbor, you didn't go to mm -hmm. school with them, you probably weren't going to meet them. When we think about it now, because of the technology that we have, apps and Zoom and and social mm -hmm. media, all these ways that we have to connect with people, we now have the ability to connect with our best possible match or matches anywhere in the world, mm -hmm. that to me is really exciting. That makes mm -hmm. me feel like we are living through the best time in history ever to be single because, I mean, look, Meghan Markle, who's a divorcee, <laughs> right, who comes from a modest background, she married the freaking prince of mm -hmm. England. If that is possible for her and she's half black, I mean, hello, as, mm -hmm. a, as a black Jewish a child of, uh, of first generation immigrants. I mean, that's exciting to me that any of this, <laughs> anything can change at any minute. You, too, can cause a man to leave a toxic monarchy. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, amazing. So if someone is single, how much should they have their own finances together before they start seriously looking for, like, a partner? Ooh, I don't think you should delay your happiness. That said, I do think you should get your finances together to what, whatever extent that is reasonable for you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a career path right. laid out for you. Yeah, I'm asking very capitalist questions. I agree with everything that you're saying. And I think it's like this weird thing of like, oh, you can't date unless, you know, you have all of your finances together. And then it's like, okay, explain to me how poor people get married. But but I'm like, I feel like I'm asking the questions that like the like Cosmo magazine would ask you or something. Like, I feel like, um, I love your question. Like there's, <laughs> but there's like all these questions like that I've come up that are so, I feel so like upper class focused, right? Where it's like, should you marry someone with debt? And it's like, who doesn't have debt? Please explain to me a person who doesn't have debt. Like how, how what percentage of the population is that? But then you'll read these, these, you know, advice columns that are like, no, no girl or whatever. <laughs> I actually I have receipts on that, too. On OkCupid, uh, there's been a decrease in users saying they would not date someone with considerable debt. But at the same time, you you keep reading like, 
oh, well, money is the number one reason for divorce. All couples fight about money. Like, is that still true? It is true. Yet, I feel that money is a proxy for other things. Like, no, you're actually fighting over control. Mm. Or you're actually fighting over trust. Like, I'm working so hard to build this life for us. And then my partner goes and spends the money I've worked hard for without telling me Mm. that's a break in trust. I think the challenges around money, I think the challenges around um, in, in a household, like the way that you use your home, I think all of those things can, can shine a light on what the true challenges are at the relationship. And we get to work on them and you can find out a lot about your partner by asking them if they're willing to work on these these kind of issues. There's so many people that are exploring therapy. We're also seeing that couples who are not married are exploring relationship therapy prior to getting married or moving their relationship further. That's what I would like to see. <laughs> right. Right. Rather than thinking about financial security first, how about emotional security? <laughs> how about having some of those mm-hmm. those conversations where you unpack your beliefs that were passed down from generation to generation about money and about, you know, all of these other things that we think we need in a relationship that sometimes are not as important as we've been led to believe. The hardest part about the relationship is finding out what's going on with you. That's hard. But then also communicating that vulnerably and honestly to someone else. To me, I'm going to jump off a cliff. I I can't, I, I want to do that the least of anything I've ever wanted to do. But you pull teeth to be like, I am upset because when I was a child, my parents would use money as a way to, you know what I mean? Like, and you have to say that to another person, kill me. <laughs> You're doing the tough work that a lot of people are not, they're not at that place yet. So what is the like, big money advice or when you when I was like will you come on this show and talk about money like what were some things that you were like okay I I this is my this is my thing that chaps my ass to borrow from the podcast a little bit culty uh and I want to get it out to the people oh yes my ass is so chapped (laughs) it's so chapped about people thinking that someone who has fewer finances than they do being a drain on their resources. And, you know, as I was saying earlier, this whole idea about gender roles, that ship has sailed. And to me, that's old thinking. Like, I have a master's degree and I make this much money. So I need someone that's at my level and I need someone else. Like, I'm working 60 hours a week. I need somebody that's that passionate about their career. Well, guess what? You want to have kids. You want to have a dog. You want to have a house. Like, all of these things take time and take resources and take different skills to to bring them to fruition. So you might not need someone if you are working 60 hours a week in a corporate job and making, you know, mid six figures. You might not need someone that's at your financial level. You might need emotional support. You might need mm-hmm. somebody who's who's able to stay home and and be a homemaker and, and be there that. for your kids and wants that. And so mm-hmm. remembering that you get to write the rules of mm-hmm. your love story. And take we need to take stock of what are the stories about money and financial security that we've inherited and which ones we can thank and release like Marie Kondo. Like 
send that one back to its place of origin. Thank you so much, Grandma, for teaching me that lesson that kept you safe and secure when you were young, but it doesn't fit for my life mm-hmm. and the place that we are in the world right now. I, I wrote this in a script a long time ago, but sometimes you don't need a perfect match. You need two puzzle pieces and they come together to make a picture of a boat. <laughs> and, <that's, laughs> and that was a character in the script's way of describing love. That's it. You figured it out. Thank you so much. Where can people find um, more about you and your podcast and your work? Thank you, Gabby. Uh, you can find out more about me at Demona Hoffman on all the socials. And also, I do the Dates and Mates podcast every single week. We're coming up on 400 episodes. Oh, my God. And yeah, I love answering people's questions about love, about money, whatever it is that's challenging you in dating or relationships. Come over to datesandmates.com and I'll help you out. This is not a usual episode for us. This is our finale. And as the year comes to a close, I have a lot on my mind. Taxes, for one. I'm joking. In all seriousness, whether you believe in resolutions or not, I know there will be an influx of people visiting this podcast with desperation and determination. And I want to say, welcome. This is a huge step, and I don't want to minimize wherever you are in your journey. I started this podcast in 2016, asking myself how to find out what my student loans actually were and if it mattered in what order I paid them off. It did. I asked how to avoid overdrafting. I asked how to fill out a check. I asked what a stock even was and where you could buy them. I truly knew nothing. And now I have a stock portfolio. I do a little covered call trading, which I talked about in my episode with Anna Akana this season. I know how to look up what companies pay dividends, and more importantly, I know what that means. I pay a mortgage, which is terrifying. I split expenses with someone I love who I'm not married to, but with whom I own a home. Nothing is predictable, and everything has changed so much. The most frustrating part of any of this is waiting. It's time. It's sometimes really needing to start over from zero. No matter how many times you build it up, You never know when you're going to have to start over from zero again. Thank you, capitalism. It's also the vulnerability of starting at all. But then, and I'm sorry, and I hate to bring this news to you so close to Christmas, but the vulnerability sticks around. Even though you know more, even though your problems and situations change, the vulnerability is a part of money you got to make friends with. Ask for help, share information, be giving, be willing to accept gifts. It's worth it to plan, but you can't try to game. A lot of this finance stuff takes time, and you can't predict anything. I mean, you can try. There are some things you can try to predict, but at the end of the day, anything could happen. And there are not enough social safety nets to help anybody out. The final glorious aspect of my education, and yours alongside me, whether you're just beginning it or you've been doing it for years, is the new awareness that these issues are bigger than ourselves. Political action is necessary. The status quo isn't enough. Just like in a romantic partnership, we have to extend empathy to others and work together. Ugh, I know, gross, vulnerable, ugh, I hate it. But look, the new year's a great place to start. I love you all. See you next year. Done.